and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, Would you stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text today and turn in your Bibles, I hope you have one, to Exodus chapter 1. That's the second book in the Bible. If you're a guest with us today, we turn to a new sermon series by turning one page in God's Word as we move from a year-long study of the book of Genesis to what will be a little bit shorter than that, but a longish study of the book of Exodus And you might know that there is an undeniable link. There's this partnership between the Bible's first two books, one that's quite strong, in fact, that one scholar can say, without a knowledge of Genesis, Exodus is unintelligible. And that may be a little bit of a strong statement, but he's not too far off. Because you have to know what's been going on with God's people from Genesis onwards to ever make sense of what even we see in the first six verses of Genesis chapter 1, which is our text today. And so I trust for the many of you that have been walking through Genesis with us over the last several months that you're primed, that you're pumped, you're ready for this book, you're full of God's covenant promises that He's revealed to His people. Because as I read our 22 verses, see if you can notice the various ways, some are overt, some are more subtle, that God is already by Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 1, fulfilling promises He made in Genesis. So let's read these verses and pray for our time, and then we will begin. Listen now as God speaks to us through His Word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly. They multiplied, and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many, are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. 
And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we do ask for your mercy and grace to be upon us, that you would send your spirit amongst us as we study this wonderful truth that you have for us, that our eyes would be opened to your word, that our hearts would be full of the spirit, that we might respond with meekness, humility, repent where we must, trust where we need to, help us to hear as dying people, for me to preach as a dying man with clarity and courage as you say I must. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was 17 years old when I made my first read-through of The Lord of the Rings. It was a story that had a relative amount of prominence in the stone home of my youth, and so I knew the outlines of the story quite well. But as I began to actually read page by page through the volumes, I found myself coming across all of these stunning discoveries of how it really went or how it really was going throughout the voyage into Middle-earth. And if you know anything about the stories, the heroes of sorts are our little hobbits, these you know, peace-loving, uh, pleasant people that live in the Shire. This is a place that's kind of lush and green. It's cozy and serene. And by the time you get to the end of the story... The heroes are on their way back to the Shire, and you assume that when they arrive in their homeland, it's going to be a place again full of pleasant peace. But they arrive back to a land that is ravaged by these dictator-like figures. Destruction and damage reign all around. Many of the hobbits have been imprisoned, some of whom have even been killed. And it's this stunning change in the scenery, as in the span of just many pages, quick story of a great battle that you find peace has given way to hardship, that prosperity has given way to affliction, that life has given way to death. And it's that kind of change that you see in our text this morning in Exodus chapter 1, because the first seven verses present Israel at peace, and it's like this stunning turn, of course, in the sweep of chapter 1, from peace to difficulty, from prosperity to affliction, from life to death. And it's here to remind us, in part, that the great war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, it's still hot. The battle is on, as we've seen since Genesis chapter 3 forward. As so a students, a simple way you might want to think about this chapter, you could title it, The Need for Deliverance. It's the backdrop, the why to God's redemption of His people from Egypt. Why is it that they need this great Old Testament story of salvation, redemption, and deliverance? It's in many ways because the serpent continues to war against God's chosen people. And that serpent's going to strike in a variety of ways in our text today. So by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, it's almost as though Moses wants us to kind of sit back, stand back. And think to ourselves, in light of everything we've seen in Genesis. And so it begins. 
And kids, it's even a good reminder for you that when you are baptized into the church, that you become part of God's family, you're enlisted as a soldier in Christ's army, participating and fighting in this great war that has raged for centuries and centuries, the war between the devil, Satan, and the deliverer, uh, Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, even in the course of recent months of study in Genesis, years and years, Decades and decades, even centuries and centuries pass with God's people crying out for deliverance. God's people longing for redemption. And the answer they keep hearing from God is, not yet. Victory is on the way for sure. Deliverance will arrive in time, but not yet. So much of the Christian life, isn't it, about living in that not yet. You're waiting on God to bring about His promise in your life. And so how are we as God's children to live in the midst of not yet? Well, part of what Exodus 1 wants us to know is that we live in that not yet by renewing our trust in God's covenant promise. It wants us to see, once again in this passage, the surety of God's covenant promise. Because the simple theme that you want to see from our text is God keeps His covenant promise. And I hope you notice maybe some ways in which he's already done that by Exodus 1. But there are some more subtle, perhaps even surprising ways that he does that in Exodus 1. So we'll think first of all in verses 1 through 7, the promise realized. Then verses 8 through 16, the promise threatened. And then the back portion of our text, we'll think of the promise protected. The promise realized comes in the first seven verses. I'm sure your English translation doesn't render it this way, but the first word in Hebrew in Exodus 1.1 is and. You may not know this, that the first word in Hebrew in Leviticus is and. The first word in Numbers in Hebrew is and. And so it's almost as though Moses, as he's writing this, it really is one long story that spans four books talking about God's covenant people and their redemption from the promised land, their wilderness wanderings as they begin to get to that point of actually entering the promised land. It's why one scholar has said, we really should refer to it as a tetratuch, you know, the first four books of the Bible. Moses wants us to understand that his narrative is a page-turner. We just simply turn to the next page without losing much spiritual momentum. You know, I remember being in Half Price Books about 10 years ago and I was looking around on the shelves and there was a new title that they were selling that had an interesting enough cover for me to walk over and grab it. And then I saw one of the most famous authors in the world uh, declaring in his endorsement on that cover, I defy you to pick up this book and put it down again. And I thought to myself, well, challenge accepted. So I went and purchased the book and it became one of the best trilogies I've read in the last 10 years. And it's in the same way spiritually. Moses wants God's Word to be that way for God's people. I defy you to pick up this book and put it down again. For he simply says, and. Assuming that you'll close out Genesis and immediately pick up Exodus. And I hope God's Word is exhilarating, as exciting to you in in such a way. And so you see in verses one through following, is that it's not as though Moses is picking up immediately where Genesis left off in chapter 50. He's going further back to chapter 46, where we heard the roll call of Israel. And so here's what he's reminding of us. You'll see that in the next few verses. Here are the 12 tribes of Israel. And just to make sure you know, when the Israelites came into Egypt, they were numbering 70 people strong. 
And so it's not just looking backward to Genesis from this prologue. It's also looking forward because he's reminding us here of God's covenant promise began with one man, wasn't it? Abram. God eventually changed his name to Abraham. Then as Genesis continued, the promise was growing, wasn't it? From one man to one family that the book of Genesis often referred to as the sons of Jacob. And what you get here now, however long the passage of time exactly is, it's certainly a few hundred years. By verse 7, the covenant promise to one man that became one family is now one nation. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I hope you know that's God's promise realized. It's Right there for you to write it upon your heart. By the time we get to Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, God has already fulfilled His promise that He's made in part to the nation of Israel. Because He told Abram what? I will make you into a great nation. And it's as though Moses is piling up these verbs. They're like heaping up on one another just to underscore how great and mighty and full of people Israel is at this moment. You could circle the phrase that my ESV renders here as increased greatly. It's a verb used in Hebrew often of insects swarming. So kids, think about this great anthill that maybe you found in your front yard after a recent rain. And if you poke it, what happens? Ants start swarming out. And that's the image here of Israel in Egypt. They are swarming everywhere. God has realized His promise. But not just that. What you want to notice also is verse 7 has a very clear echo of a significant text in Genesis. So think of another place in Genesis where you've heard these verbs that are here in verse 7. Fruitful. Multiply. Fill. Genesis 1 verse 28, isn't it? That first commandment God gives to His creation, what we often refer to as the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over every living creature. And it's almost as though that's being fulfilled here. But certainly Pharaoh, the ruler in the land, has a fear about Israel's growing power, their growing dominion-like ability. So we move in from verse 7 to verse 8 from the promise realized to the promise threatened. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You could take his lack of knowledge of Joseph Actually, in a variety of ways. It could mean simply, so many years have passed, he just never heard of Joseph before. It could mean, well, he did know Joseph at one time, but then as he got older, he just forgot about him. I think what's more likely, and certainly much more sinister, which sounds like the serpent making war on the woman of God's people, is that he knew who Joseph was. I don't think it would have really been possible in the culture of that time in Egypt, in the passage of years, yes, there was many but them to totally lose sight of the fact that there was a Savior who had come before and His name was Joseph that rescued our people from famine. What you get is a new king shows up and he, like many leaders often do, they reject the previous regime. They reject the previous people of honor and a show of strength and a show of power. He's saying, no more talk of Joseph. We're not even going to show honor to his family. In fact, Notice how his family has grown so much that now they present a problem to us in Egypt. Look at verse 9 and 10. He brings his people together, Pharaoh does, and says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, 
Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. You probably won't understand Pharaoh's fear until you remember where Israel was in the land of Egypt. So kids, do you remember where Joseph settled his family in Egypt at Pharaoh's permission? It was a land of Goshen. Now, do you remember, think about points on a compass, where Goshen was in Egypt? It's the northern frontier. At this time, in Egypt's political life and military life, if an enemy was going to come to invade Egypt, they always came from where? The north. So think about it. You have an invading army full of your enemies. They're passing by this nation that really doesn't belong there. And in fact, they're a mighty fighting force themselves. So Pharaoh understandably saying, well, they might unite in this kind of alliance and make war upon Egypt, and then Israel's going to get out of the land. Now, we can't have that, so we have to deal shrewdly with them, is what he says. And you'll see, even again, if you glance down that first phrase, if you will, in verse 10, come let us. It's loaded language in the Bible's first few books, because it always stretches back to Genesis verse. Or chapter 11, where the people at Babel said what? Come, let us build a city. Build a tower that will stretch up to heaven. So maybe it's not surprising then that Pharaoh's first strategy to control the Israelites is one of city making and brick building. Because look at what he says, in, or what we're told in verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So even if it's not true, it seems like Pharaoh's tactic is little more than death by slavery. Because many Israelites are going to die as slaves. But even if they don't all die, of course, they're now going to be subjugated as slaves. Maybe this harsh slavery, this harsh bondage that we're going to put around their necks, this yoke that's too heavy to bear, it will actually break their will. But stunningly, perhaps it's maybe not surprising to you, Pharaoh's plan doesn't work. Look again at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. You can think about it, of course, can't you, as Egyptians, especially as leaders and rulers. This scheme was supposed to control the people, and yet they're only spreading all the more. Like, how can we actually make it stop? And maybe you know throughout church history, so many times when God's people are blessed, it's when they're most oppressed. That it's very often that it's when times of affliction and suffering and sorrow rise that God's people grow. Maybe you even know that experientially in your own life. It's in times of the most profound pain that you've learned the Lord's comfort best. It's times of most profound oppression. An enemy stands against you. That you learn God's power of delivery best. And so here you have the seed of the serpent making war against the seed of the woman. And it's not going well. And so what Pharaoh does in verse 13 and 14, he just increases the pressure, the temperature, if you will, on this spiritual fiery furnace. He, we're told, so they ruthlessly 
made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You can see it a little bit in this translation, but certainly in the original, there's this kind of whip-like crack of service in every few phrases. This ruthless subjection of the people of Israel. Of course, the word ruthlessly shows up in both verses to make sure we understand the degree of difficulty and pain and the oppression upon Israel at this time. And kids, you might be like one of my kids that says, well, what does ruthlessly mean, Dad, when I was reading this story earlier this week? It, of course, means they were treated without kindness or compassion. How often it is for God's people throughout the ages that rulers and governments never treat them with kindness or compassion. Uh, Be not surprised when you find persecution in the world. Did not Jesus even himself say in John 16, If you are my disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. An easy passage is not promised to you on your way to the celestial city and promised land. But death by slavery doesn't seem to work. So, Pharaoh comes up with another tactic, which we might call death by midwife. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one whose name was Pua and the other Shifra, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So students, why is it that he wants to kill all the boys but not the girls? There are actually a number of reasons why he could have wanted to do this according to ancient customs. It simply could have been because bloodline and status went through the males. By killing all the males, essentially Israel's status as a nation would eventually die out. It could be also, according to the customs of the time, well, if you you kill all the boys, the next generation of girls will grow up and they're going to have to intermarry with the Egyptians. And so the nation of Israel will just assimilate into Egyptian culture. It's a rather subtle way, isn't it, to get rid of the nation of Israel. Or, of course, most likely, as well, the boys will grow up to be men, and they already have too many men that could fight against us, and we don't want any more soldiers in God's army. And so Pharaoh says, scheme number two, death by midwife. The promise realized, the promise threatened, now gives way to the promise protected. You know, I think the first biography I ever read in the World War II era was one my mother made us read. is actually an autobiography of a woman named Corrie Ten Boom, whom I'm sure many of you know her story. She and her Netherlands family, you know, they had this room in their house they called the hiding place. And there they would stash away in secret Jews or other resistance fighters who Hitler's Gestapo was searching for in order, of course, that they could bring them into concentration camps that would almost assuredly bring about their death. And you never know about these things because it's always hard to number it exactly, but most people would tell you that Corey Ten Boom and her family were able to save something like 800 different people uh, through their rebelling against the government at that time. And we don't know exactly how many people Shifra and Pua saved and the nation of Israel, how I many baby boys, but we certainly know that they rejected the government's edict at the time and they became God's means of protection. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. It's one of the earliest examples, you know, in Scripture of appropriate civil disobedience. 
like when it is right to disobey the government. Because kids, you have a ruler coming along saying you must kill all the baby boys that you deliver. And God's word also says, be subject and obey ruling authorities. So who should you obey? Well, of course you obey God. Because his ruling authority is no longer his servant for good at that point. He's requiring murder, which you may not do. But notice the, the grounding, if you will, for the decision. You see in verse 17 that it's because they feared God. A fear of God is the soul of godliness. You'll find it all throughout the Old Testament. It's almost a summary of true devotion uh, according to God's word. It's, it's the kind of reverence and awe. It's the kind of love that causes a person, like these midwives, to make the right decision, one that pleases God no matter the consequences. And perhaps some of you that are students that are growing into middle school and high school years, what you need to hear this morning is the importance and significance of fearing God. That God requires the right decision that pleases Him, no matter what the consequences may be. And Pharaoh, of course, doesn't like this. So he calls them to account. He calls them back to his courtroom and says, okay, what's the deal? I told you to kill all the baby boys, but all the baby boys are still living. Well, notice the midwives' response in verse 19. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, in classic Christian commentary, uh, this verse is somewhat famous as an example of what righteous deception could look like. That's totally possible. I actually think it's also totally possible that they are telling the truth. Because in the sweep of this passage, it's very clear that the nation of Israel, there's an abundance of prosperity in their progeny at this moment. More women than usual are conceiving. Fewer miscarriages than usual are happening. More children than usual are growing into adulthood. Why wouldn't it be the reality also that more deliveries happen faster and more easily than they normally would that the Hebrew midwives couldn't get there in time. But whatever it is, the exact reason, you see how the Lord honors their fear of Him, verse 20 and 21. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. I had a professor at one time in a seminary course that said... A couple weeks project of his was isolating every instance of the fear of the Lord mentioned in Scripture. Putting him into a document and seeing what he could glean from all of those. And what he learned along the way, and you would learn the same thing too, especially if you look through the instances of fearing God in the Old Testament, how often God rewards fearing Him. He doesn't promise a reward for fearing Him, but how often He rewards His people when they fear Him. And even the blessing here of families is rather ironic because, of course, Pharaoh says to these midwives, what? Destroy families. They say, no, we're not going to do that. And so what do they get? Families out of it. It's much like Psalm 127 and 128 that you could read later on today. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord to whom God has given children as a reward. God's promise is being realized. It continues to be under threat. But God is continuing also to protect His promise because you want to recognize that God always keeps His covenant promise. One of the best-known English preachers in the 19th century was a man named Octavius Winslow. 
1859, he published a book that was called The Precious Things of God. He took the Bible, opened it up, and found every place that God called something precious. It actually doesn't happen as many times as you might think. And so each instance, he then would just, in meditation, write a chapter out about what's been called precious. So, students, children, think about any place in Scripture, a text you might remember of God calling something precious. Uh, my favorite chapter in his book is called The Preciousness of the Divine Promise. Because he takes it from 2 Peter 1 verse 4 that talks about God's very great and precious promises. And he begins that chapter by calling God's promises the jewelry of sacred scripture. That sparkle with the truths of his love, faithfulness, and power for his people. And I think that's totally right. And as you arm yourselves with God's promises, what you're arming yourself with, according to Exodus chapter 1, is a sparkling truth. Of a God who keeps his covenant promise. And to make sure you understand the obvious, but perhaps even subtle ways in this text that God is keeping his covenant promise. As we begin to close, let me help you notice three more things about his faithfulness. The first thing you want to notice that God is faithful to his promise of suffering. Flip back to Genesis chapter 15. You cannot understand Exodus without Genesis, especially without Genesis 15. God is faithful to his promise of suffering. For it was there in Genesis 15, it's this pivotal passage in Abram's life. God is ratifying the covenant word that he spoke to him first in Genesis chapter 12. And in this night vision, Abram is put to sleep. And here is what God tells him, Genesis 15 verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Then if you kind of flip back to Exodus chapter 1, you hear language of that fulfillment, don't you? Verse 11, Pharaoh set taskmasters over them to what? Afflict them with heavy burdens. That word afflict in the original is, is incredibly strong. Uh, you could translate it today kind of more for our language as crushed. It gets used in the Old Testament often of a man forcing himself upon a woman, such as the affliction and the crushing reality. And if you read your Bible rightly, what you realize here when you get to Exodus chapter 1, God has already fulfilled that promise. You have sorrow. And understand what God has told the Israelite people. You're not going to have sorrow for four hours. You're not going to have sorrow for four years. You're not going to have sorrow for four decades. You're going to have sorrow for four centuries. And this is all according to my good kind and wise providence. You need to see God's mysterious providence behind that crushing blow upon Israel. He's doing something with them. Isn't it so true that God often brings his people to pain because he wants you to recognize. He wants to bring you to the end of yourself to where you see that he alone can provide you with strength, that he alone can deliver you, that he alone is worthy of all your trust. So you might be like the nation of Israel in a certain way spiritually in here today that you feel that you are crushed with heavy burdens. I know a number of you are, or you might reflect back on years past and remember times when I have been crushed with heavy burdens. Or perhaps you know your Bible well enough to look forward into future, however long it takes the Lord Jesus come back and know that I probably will be crushed with heavy burdens. Because did not the apostle himself tell the church, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted? Afflicted? 
crushed, but the good news is crushed but not broken because of the second thing. He's faithful not just to his promise of sorrow, he's faithful also to his promise of support. And it's really surprising support in Exodus 1. Because who are the agents of God's strengthening power? Well, if you read the text rightly, it's Shifra and Pua, these Hebrew midwives, which is altogether stunning when you realize Exodus as a whole never names the Pharaoh. It drives academics wild. This Pharaoh is, Lord willing, going to die next week at the end of chapter 2. And he never gets named. Another one comes. That's the one we actually probably know from the stories of Genesis. I'm sorry, of Exodus, of interacting with Moses. And he never gets a name either. The greatest power in the world never gets named in the Bible's book. But who gets named? Two ordinary, simple Hebrew midwives. How true it is that God loves to support his people through ordinary believers. Kids, you need to remember that the Bible doesn't call you to this kind of superhero-like spirituality to conquer the world for Christ. What does the Lord say? Trust and obey. Of course, for there's no other way. And it's the ordinary way that He supports His people. A kind word from a dear brother or sister in Christ that rightly suits the occasion. Goes so far, doesn't it, to provide support. So it's the promise of sorrow. It's the promise being fulfilled of support. He had always said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you wherever you go. But thirdly, in a way that we need to end with in verse 22, God is faithful to his promise of a savior. The war is on. The war between the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman, the promise of the savior stretching all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Pharaoh recognizes his scheming seems to not work. Death by slavery. Death by midwife now gives way, notice verse 22 at the very end, to death by water. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And of course, if you just know the next few paragraphs, you know how this decree became his undoing. Who gets put into the water? And who gets brought out of the water? And who gets... Welcomed into Pharaoh's household, who will, of course, eventually redeem God's people unto the promised land. None other than a Savior, whose name is Moses. God is faithful to provide a Redeemer. But you might know if you spiral the story of redemptive history forward many centuries. Think of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 and 2. Another ruler over God's people comes along. He also says, kill all the baby boys. And do you remember what happens because of that decree? It became the devil's undoing, didn't it? Because a family from Bethlehem departed that land and went into this very land of our very text, in Egypt. And it was a few years later. They sojourned back or traveled back to the promised land and settled in Nazareth. That he might be called Jesus of Nazareth that it might fulfill God's promise to his covenant people. Out of Egypt, I called my son. God is always faithful to his covenant promise. So as the nations always rage, don't they? As governments oppress God's people, as trials, temptations, and troubles only rise in their spiritual heat, you can trust that God is faithful to his promise of sorrow for your good. God is faithful to his promise of support 
no matter your situation. And God is faithful to provide a savior for his people to deliver them from all affliction. And his name is Jesus Christ, the one who is God's covenant promise. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would minister to us in our weakness, that you would help us in our weariness. You alone know, perfectly know, the place where we need your kindness and grace today. Lord, we pray especially for those that are in the midst of a season of sorrow. Perhaps it's been short, perhaps it's been quite long. May they be renewed in their trust as they look to you. For you've promised unto them deliverance. You've promised unto them good from their trials. You've promised unto them the support of a Savior. Strengthen them, we pray, that they might be able to endure, that we might be able to walk in faithfulness. A trust-filled waiting upon your promises to come to pass. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just as the nation of Israel was made to wait for God's promises to pass, so we often have to wait.